Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. (laughs) This week, we will be talking about When Thieves Fall Out, Season 4, Episode 2, first aired September 27th, 1987, and the IMDb summary reads, When a prisoner is released from jail after serving 20 years, he returns to Cabot Cove to prove he was wrongly convicted. Now, let's start with trivia, then the returners, the cast, and get into the story. Trivia. The title is a quote from James William Emery Townsend, the notorious 19th century liar, who said, when thieves fall out, honest men get their dues. But when honest men fall out, lawyers get their fees. That's something for you to unpack real quick. (laughs) That's deep, though. But we see here when thieves fall out, what happens, right? There is some level of justice, spoiler. But when before they fell out, an honest man ended up going to trial and being convicted and having to pay lawyers fees. Isn't that crazy? You have to pay lawyers fees even if you're convicted. Yes, pay your lawyers though. So now on to the returners. We have two. One is John Glover. We will recognize him as Franz Mueller from One White Rose for Death. In this episode, he plays Andrew Durbin. And this is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. We then have Dak Rambo. And we will recognize him as Brian Shelby from Deadly Ladies. The second episode, technically the second episode of the first season. In this episode, he plays Bill Hampton. So now the entire cast. So we have Sheriff Tupper. We don't have Seth in this episode, which is strange because it's a Cabot Cove episode. We have a Doc Matthews. There's no discussion about where Seth is. So there's that. Uh, (laughs) We have Andrew Durbin, Arnie Wakeman, Coach Kevin Caldwell, Tara Silman, Judge Perry Silman, Bill Hampton, Allison Hampton, Dan Pulling, and Doc Matthews. So we open up at Bill Hampton's car lot. And basically, he's firing Dan who is his good friend, but is also an alcoholic who has not dealt with his alcoholism and it is affecting him as an employee. So Bill is terminating him. When Bill goes back into the dealership, he sees a man who is looking at a red convertible And there's some back and forth, but this is Andrew Durbin. And he's looking at him suspiciously. He's looking at Bill suspiciously. And we'll find out soon enough why that is. So the next scene, we're at Jessica's. She is getting ready to go out. She's just doing a little bit of typing as she does when the doorbell rings. And it's Andrew. 
And he is actually there. He's in town renting Lila Small's house. And Jessica has the key. She says that she now remembers that Lila told her to expect him, but it flew right out of her mind. She was like, I promise you I'm not addled brain like you think you probably think I am. To which Andrew says, uh, definitely not. Not the person who wrote the Belgrave murders. So we know that he is at least aware of one of her many novels. So he drives her to Lila's house. And she lets him in. She's opening up the windows and, you know, to air out the house. And we find out from Andrew that he was there many years ago and he ended up staying longer than he had expected or longer than he'd like to have stayed. And of course, we later find out that's because he was in prison. So yeah, he ain't planned to stay in the state of Maine for as long as he did. Or in Cabot Cove for, I guess, the duration of the trial. Spoiler. Uh, not really a spoiler because we already know that somebody was coming out of prison. So, yeah, it was after trial and a conviction. So Jessica's like, oh, like, would it, you know, it must be nice to return here. And he's like, yeah, I'm just really here for the fresh air and the salt water and whatever. And she's like, oh, you really sound like someone with a raging case of cabin fever. And he's like, yeah, that's an understatement. So Jessica's like, oh, I'm running late. And so Andrew agrees to, well, offers, and she accepts for him to drop her off. And she is going to a farewell or retirement party for Coach Caldwell. So the next scene, we're in Judge Perry's chambers, and he's in there with Arnie. Now, Arnie Wakeman is also someone who he grew up with, someone that he knows very well. He also knows Bill Hampton very well, as, and he knows Dan Pullings very well. They were all on the football team together when Cabot Cove won the championship. This is very married with children, Al Bundy. Okay. <laughs> oh, goodness. That was an awesome and terrible show at the same time. Anyway, so Arnie is suing Bill because he is claiming that the car he purchased from Bill was a lemon. And because of it being a lemon, it resulted in him getting into an accident due to the low quality of the vehicle and becoming permanently disabled and confined to a wheelchair. Now, Perry, while in court off scene, he recuses himself, meaning that he states that he is cannot be fair and impartial to preside over this case. And he tells Arnie, what I said out there is, is the facts. The, I know you and Bill since we were kids, right? We went to high school together. We've kept in touch all these years. There is no way that I can um, preside over this case. Like, this is exactly what a conflict of interest is. And Arnie is like, but no, you're the perfect person because you know how underhanded Bill is. And Arnie... Not Arnie. And Perry is like, no, that's the end of it. I am not hearing this case. And he is 1000% correct. There, 
there is no way in this world that he could have cleaned this conflict up. Even if both Bill and Arnie said, no, it's okay. He can preside over this case. Absolutely not. His license to practice law is not worth these two jokers. Trust and believe. So the next scene, well, Arnie then leaves, right? And soon after he leaves, Sheriff Tupper comes in with Andrew and he hands paperwork to the judge because he's like, I've never had to deal with this before. So Perry looks down at it. He then looks up at the guy in shock. We don't see what the paperwork is. We don't hear what it is until the next scene or two. I think it's in a little bit. So the next scene, we're at the coach's farewell party and Perry is there speaking with Jessica and he tells Jessica that they were parole papers for Andrew. And I'm like, okay, sir, now you should not be telling randoms, not for nothing, Jessica is a random about this. It's not like he's a sex offender and has to register and that is public information. But he as a paroled person must certify or give notice to a person in law enforcement as to his parole status and that he will be here for some period of time. Now, the fact is that he did this in order to smoke out the two people he was looking for, right? And I say that because he's only planning to stay there until he figures out who the two people are who actually committed the murder that he was convicted of. So this is, he's not moving to Cabot Cove where he would need to register or even have mail sent there. He's not going to be there long enough for any of this. So I don't know if he really had a need, if he was going to be there at most like a month, you know, like, I don't know, maybe he thought he was going to have to be there for several months um, until he could figure out who the two people were who actually murdered uh, the person he was convicted of murdering. But Perry runs his mouth and tells Jessica and Jessica is just very surprised. She was like, oh, like he's so nice and seems, you know, pleasant and not like a murderer. And I'm like, Jessica, you have met three full seasons <laughs> worth of people who have murdered people. Like they look like any and everything. They look like they are murderers. They look like they're not murderers and they run the gamut in between. So she's like, oh, he's so nice and polite and stuff like that. And Perry's like, yeah, but the fact is he spent 20 years in state prison for murder. So at this point, the coach and several other um, of the friends walk over and the coach is like, oh, you know, I was head over heels with Jessica the first day I saw her, but she wouldn't leave her husband. And he then says, I then met Frank. So I, and I then understood why she didn't, but he then became the best friend a man could ever have. And so Jessica says, you know, it's a two way street. You know, we all had many great years together as friends. 
And the coach was like, not all of them were great. You remember my uh, football camp? I was going to be the next Pop Warner. So if you're not American, um, I don't even know if all Americans know about this, but there are children's football teams, right? I don't know what age they go up to, but it's for young kids, typically boys. And it's Pop Warner. That's the name of it. I guess that's the person who started it however many years ago. And they kind of like franchised it out, I guess, to use the name or whatever. However that works. But Pop Warner is actually kind of like Kleenex, you know, (laughs) like for young kids football. But I think there's probably rules and regulations for when you can actually call your team a part of the Pop Warner program. But it's kind of like that where it's um, nationwide. So that's what he is referring to. And they all laugh about it. They also talk about um, the one and only championship Cabot Cove ever had was in 1966. And he was the coach. Caldwell was the coach. And Arnie, Dan, uh, they start looking for Dan because he's not around as yet. Um, Perry and Bill were all on the football team and playing when they won the championship. So at this point, Arnie, who can't keep his mouth shut, starts um, making comments that make people uncomfortable. It's not funny. He's trying to be funny. And he seems like he has a chip on his shoulder. I don't know if he was always the troublemaker, but it sounds like we find out later that he was the poor kid so I guess he overcompensated back then or he's overcompensating now because he did super well in the stock market. So he became very wealthy. So I don't know. He's probably still trying to figure out how he fits in with these people as adults. But he was annoying in this small time that we had with him here. So then Jessica steps away Um with the coach, he gives his thanks for her putting this together. um, And then he goes to leave. I'm like, how are you leaving your party early? But okay, whatever. So Tara, who is Judge Perry's wife, walks over and they were all like high school sweethearts and things like that. So Jessica knows all of them because she was all of their English teachers, just like Coach Caldwell was all of the guys football coach. And so Tara's like, yeah, I don't think the coach is going to be able to handle retirement and not doing anything. Um, He's just not that type of person. And Jessica's like, yeah, I kind of feel sorry for him. Like he has to, um, I don't think she thinks he'll be able to do it as well. Now, we don't know why he's retiring at this point, right? There's nothing that triggers his retirement because he's already planning to retire before Andrew comes into town, right? So it's not in response to Andrew coming into town asking questions about what happened 20 years ago. But, and we there's no evidence that Andrew called ahead or did some digging and, um, you know, alerted some people that he was coming. So the coach retiring at this point 
we don't know why. We never find out why he doesn't seem ready to retire. So I don't know, maybe the school was running him out because he, he old now, but and never got a championship after 1966 and we're in 1987 now. So it could be that. It could be, it, it's probably that. that. That's what it is. Probably the school like, yeah, sir, thank you for your service. Um, I think it's time to go. You've been with the school for 30 years and you've had exactly one championship. So I'm gonna, we're gonna need you to leave, Okay. You can do it on your own terms, but it it needs to be by the end of this year. Just so you know, great. So I think that's probably what happened. So at this point, they, Perry's like, all right, since the guest of honor has left, we can go. Peace out. So they all leave. They walk outside and they see Danny and Danny is drunk. Like he can't even put one foot in front of the other and stay balanced. He is like holding on to the trunks of vehicles as he's walking down the parking lot. So the coach, he calls out to the coach. The coach starts to walk over to him and Perry is talking to Tara and his wife. And he's like, Oh, let me go. Here's Danny. Let me go and um, see what's going on. And Tara's like, uh, let the coach handle this. We're not back in school. Okay, school is out. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Don't, you don't need to get involved with that because for one, you're a judge and this could get real sticky because did he drive here? Now are you a witness to a crime? Like what's going on here? Leave him be. Let the coach deal with him. If the coach needs assistance, he will get assistance. This ain't any part of our business. And unfortunately, I have to agree. Like, he, he has a, Dan has a real problem that he is refusing to deal with. Don't get entangled in this and end up messing our, our situation up. All right. You work too hard to get where you at. Leave him be. So as the next scene, we're actually still outside. Bill is giving Jessica a ride home. So Jessica gets in the passenger seat um, Bill closes her door and walks around to the driver's side and he sees something under his windshield. He picks it up and it is a news clipping with regards to a hitchhiker being arrested for murder and stealing $100,000 in bearer bonds, right? So Bill sees this. Allison, who is Bill's wife, is like, oh, honey, what is that? He's like, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's it, 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 it's a joke, right? <laughs> like he out here stuttering. She's like, okay. And so they get in the car. Later that night, Allison and Bill are asleep in bed. When the phone rings, Bill wakes up, he answers the phone and he's like, who is this? What is this about? So of course his wife has woken up and she's like, uh, what's going on? Who was that? He hangs up the phone. He then gets out of bed, goes, looks out the window, right? Then goes downstairs. And the entire time his wife is like, what is going on, Bill? And I'm like, listen, this is very unsettling. And your wife does not know what's going on. Is she in danger? Are you both in danger? Like, (laughs) it's like, 
you just looked out that you got this strange call you looked out the window and now you're running downstairs he then proceeds to go out the front door he says zero things to his wife does pays her pocket lint okay which is extremely disrespectful like point blank period walks out there's uh an attache case or a suitcase whatever you want to call it there he opens the top a jack-in-the-box pops out of it as does fake money and there is also another newspaper clipping and this is the conviction of the hitchhiker for murder and that the Barabans have not been found as well. They're still missing even after the hitchhiker was convicted. Now, Allison is very concerned about this. And so she ends up, she's like, I'm going to go call the sheriff. Like we got to call the sheriff. And Bill is like, no, um, th- this is just an inside joke. Um, it- it's fine. There's nothing wrong. And I'm like, no, that is not a sufficient excuse when you're not giving me answers. Like, you know what's going on. You're not explaining this to me. And if I'm in danger, which for all intents and purposes, she is. Okay, this because it's not a practical joke. You know what you did. And we'll, we'll get into specifics, but you know what you did. You know the reason for this. But you're not going to tell your wife so that she can protect herself or at least be on alert and be aware. Because what if the person's crazy and wants to go after her to get to you? Anyway, he didn't think none of this through. He is terrible, just absolutely terrible that he would allow his wife to be this scared. And he knows what's going on. Like, why wouldn't you just sit down and tell her that's your whole wife? Okay, like, like y'all have been married for close to 20 years. I'm assuming they got married soon after um, high school, if not college. And they've been married for double digit years. So like, you couldn't tell her like, listen, what had happened was A, B, C, and D. And therefore, E... And now F. So this is why we have to protect ourselves and keep our head on swivel. This is what you should keep an eye out for. And if you see a vehicle that looks like this, um, go immediately to the police, you know. But no, he doesn't do that. He leaves her on red, okay? Like he heard what she said and does not respond other than do not call the police. And that's it. Like it's a joke. I don't think it's funny. This is dangerous. So the next morning, Allison goes over to Jessica's house. She tells her that she saw the clip. She tells her what was on the newspaper clip. And Jessica's like, oh, you know what? I have a vague memory of that, that a hitchhiker was convicted of murder and that $100,000 in bear bonds were missing and never found and that the person got 20 years. And so Allison is like, well, I'm worried because Bill has never hidden anything from me and he's not telling me anything. And I'm very worried and concerned for him. Right. And so um, I don't remember if it was Jessica. Oh, no, no. Allison was like, whatever it is, I'm sure that Dan is involved and it's in retaliation 
for Bill firing him. Now, that is a good assumption. She is incorrect, however. Now, the next scene, we're at the car lot and Bill is closing up for the night. The employees are leaving. He gets in his car. Now, the way they shot this scene, I was sure. Now, mind you, I've seen this episode more than once before. I was sure that they were going to blow up his car. Like they show him like unlocking the door, opening the door, getting in like a close up of him putting on his seatbelt and then him turning the key in the ignition. And I was like, oh, it's going to blow up, right? No, none of that. He just drives off. (laughs) And then as he's driving, he gets to a windy part of the road and he sees a car coming straight at him with one headlight. So he only see, it's not a motorcycle. It is a full four-door vehicle. Well, no, I take that back. It's not a four-door vehicle. It's a four, it is a four-wheeled vehicle, but it has one visible headlight. The left headlight is out and it basically runs Bill off the road. Now, the next day, Jessica and Allison are again talking and Allison is like beyond scared because she's like, Bill is carrying a gun. I overheard him. Now he did not even tell his wife this, which I'm like, he's, he's doing the most now, but she overhears him on the phone telling somebody who we don't know at this point that his car was run off the road and someone was trying to kill him. And that he knows who it is and they have to do something. And so Jessica's like, oh my God, you have to talk to Sheriff Tupper. Like this is getting very serious. And she's like, I can't do that. He would be so upset. He'd be upset if he knew I was talking to you. Now, Jessica going to tell him that you told (laughs) told her this. Not for nothing. Thankfully, he's not abusive because if Jessica went back around and told him, that Allison told her A, B, C, and D, that could backfire. But thankfully he's not abusive. But if he was, then Allison could really be in danger from him for, you know, telling their business. So I'm like, Jessica, that's something to be mindful of, you know, just saying. So the next scene, we are at Bill's car lot and Andrew is there. He has brought in a two-door Corvette, um, which Allison makes reference to. She says that she saw, she couldn't tell the color. And I'm like, you couldn't tell that that was red? Okay, that's what we're going with. A red and white two-door convertible. I don't know what brand of vehicle it is, um, but it's from the 1950s. It is definitely a classic. So this is Andrew's vehicle. Now we saw him drop Jessica off at the house in it. We saw at least the audience were able to see the color of it as it slowly drove past Bill's house after he opened that um, suitcase. They were calling it a valise. I was like, I've never heard that word before. And they used it, both Jessica and Coach Caldwell use it. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't know what writer found that in the dictionary and was like, oh, I'm about to use this, but it was very out of place. So we're going to call it a suitcase because that's what the heck it is. So (laughs) it's like a valise. What? Anyway, 
Andrew says that he brought the car in for some minor repairs. And Bill is like, oh, this vehicle's beautiful and it's well-maintained, but they're very hard to come by. How did you get it? And Andrew says, I bought it from a lady in Shalmut. Now, Shalmut is where the incident that resulted in Andrew being convicted for murder occurred. So you'll hear this a few times. So Shalmut, um, she had it garaged since her husband died 20 years ago. And Bill was like, oh, I like basically like, I know what you what do you want? So, um, or he said, tell me about, oh, no, 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 here we go. Andrew was like, I don't know. Maybe you've heard, you heard about that case. It was, it was in the papers and stuff. And Bill realizing that this is the person who has been, um, stalking him for lack of a better term. And he's like, well, try me. So Andrew says, well, a business 20 years ago, a businessman picked up a hitchhiker. And next thing you know, the man is dead and a hundred thousand dollars in negotiable bonds are missing. So at this point, Bill is like, what do you want? Cause he realizes that Andrew knows that Bill knows what happened that night. Now, spoiler, Bill was not the person who actually committed the murder. So let's remember that. So Andrew then just changes the subject. He says, yeah, so the left, no, the right side headlight is out. Like, I think it's a a minor electrical short. So... Bill was like, oh, well, we have a lot of uh, cars today. We're really busy. So you can come back at nine o'clock and I'll have it done. And so Andrew says, okay, I'll see you tonight at 9 p.m. So the next scene, Jessica is speaking with Bill because Andrew leaves. He leaves the car and he walks off. Bill comes back into the dealership and bumps into Jessica. So Jessica's like, Allison told me what happened. Allison is terribly worried and um, Bill is like well why would I hide anything from her like there's nothing going on blah 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 etc and Jessica says I know that whatever this is it's related to Andrew Durbin and he's the one who's been following you but why is he doing this and Bill is like I never met him before yesterday and he then like lashes out at Jessica and basically kicks her out And it's like, mind your business. So Jessica was like, I came here as a friend. And he's like, thanks, but no thanks. Get out. So she leaves. As soon as she walks out and closes the door and gets a little ways away, Bill calls someone to come to the lot a little bit before 9 p.m. so that they can handle Durbin together. He said, we did it before we'll have to deal with him together again. Or we help, however he put it, like basically whoever is coming a little bit before 9 p.m. is whoever was out there when the murder occurred that they framed Andrew for. So the next scene, we're at Lila's house where Andrew is staying. Amos is there as well as Jessica. 
And Andrew's like, yeah, that's me. I was convicted of murder 20 years ago and did 20 years in prison. I never hid that fact. And the fact is he brought his parole papers to get signed to acknowledge that he was in the area when honestly he did not even have to do that. Don't quote me, but I don't, I don't think he was going to be there long enough to have to, to register. But just because Amos and Jessica did not immediately recognize who he was does not mean he was hiding anything. And this is the thing Amos doesn't get. He believes that just because Andrew didn't put on Front Street, I'm here looking for the people who actually committed this murder and I plan to expose them and do find justice however I see fit that he should be in jail. He should be arrested because he is disturbing the good citizens of Cabot Cove. Now, I don't have a problem with Amos, but his way of thinking is a problem, as you can see. So Amos is like, well, you served 20 years. And Andrew's like, yes, I served 20 years. I served the time that I was sentenced to, but I did not commit that murder. Amos was like, well, the jury thought so. I'm like, you could get out of my house, actually, Sheriff. Because you're, you're, I'm nice enough to let you in. I did not have to. Both of y'all could go. Both of y'all. Like, you're going to come into the place I'm staying and you're going to be disrespectful when I did not commit any offense whatsoever? All right, fine. Cool, cool. So Andrew says, yeah, the jury got it wrong. So Jessica's like, well, what happened 20 years ago? Like, tell us your story. So Andrew says 20 years ago, he was a college student and he was hitchhiking his way from anti-Vietnam rally to anti-Vietnam rally. He was in Shalmut when he met a businessman who gave him a ride while he was driving on the outskirts of Cabot Cove. They were run off the road by some high schooler playing chicken, meaning that it was another car driving directly at them. So, you know, chicken is whoever swerves first, right? The most idiotic things. Um, That's not what actually happened. We'll find out from the point of view from the other vehicle, but that's what it looked like to to the businessman and to Andrew, that this person was playing chicken and obviously they had to be some dumb high schooler who would, who would do this and that the left. No, it would have been the, okay. If you're looking at the car, it's the left headlight. If you're driving the car or inside the car, it's the right headlight. So he said the left headlight was out and they were coming straight at them. The businessman swerved to the side of the road. He ended up hitting the shoulder And which caused him to hit his head on the steering wheel and he began to bleed and went unconscious. And Amos is like, you're not going to tell me that he died from that head wound because I saw the autopsy report. And Jessica's like, Amos, he's like, sorry, Mrs. Fletcher. I'm like, yeah, shut up and let this man tell his story. Like you think that, you know, but you don't, you assume that this stranger 
must be lying on the good people of Cabot Cove, right? He's not, actually. As many murders as y'all have had by Cabot Cove residents, you're going to tell me that you're getting your backup about this guy. Okay, cool. Got it. So Andrew said, no, he was not dead. He was unconscious and bleeding a lot. So I ran to get help because remember, this is 1966 and there are no cell phones and there are no car phones. So he had to run to the closest house, which was a farmhouse to get help. He got to the farmhouse and there were occupants in there watching TV. He could hear the TV. He was banging on the door. Um, He was yelling for help and they completely ignored him. Right. Which I'm like, these are your good folks of Cabot Cove that they would just ignore somebody who's screaming for help and saying there was an accident. Like, I'm sure they had a shotgun where they could have took the shotgun out there like, oh, is this a scam or somebody really hurt? You know, anyway, so he's like, nobody came to the door. So I went back to the scene. By the time I got back to the car. The businessman was then dead. His head had been bashed in and his luggage was all strewn over the side, the roadside. At that moment, the police pulled up and of course they arrested him because he's a hippie and he was hitchhiking. And I'm sure his belongings were in the vehicle because he was hitchhiking, right? Um, And he was a hippie, like point blank period. They were going to arrest him anyway. Let's be honest. It was the 60s. He was against Vietnam. They were law enforcement. They were going to arrest him. Now, they never found the bearer bonds. Now, my question is, how did they even know they were there? You know what I'm saying? Like, unless the businessman's partner or someone who knew he was carrying them told them that he had them. But if I were Andrew, I would have been like, no, he didn't have any bearer bonds. I don't know what you're talking about because they're missing. I'm like, they're going to assume that I stole them. I no, like, I don't, I have no idea. No, he didn't have any valise or (laughs) suitcase or briefcase in the back. No, I didn't, I didn't see anything. I, I don't know anything about bearer bonds. That would have been better than like, yeah, he had them. And then they were missing when (laughs) they were missing when I came back. Now, these bearer bonds were never found. Now, we're 20 years later and they still were never found. They did an extensive search for four days. Now, there's only based on the time of the accident, based on how the distance, because I'm like, how did the police know to come there is my question. That's never answered. That's never answered that how the police knew to come. Now, perhaps the police just were doing a round around town, you know, because we find out later it was prom night. So maybe police were out just making sure that teenagers weren't like pulled over, not all the way over to the side of the road and, you know, having prom night fun uh, on the roads of, you know, Cabot Cove. So maybe they were on routine patrol and that's how they found it, but found the accident. But like who notified the police unless the people in the farmhouse hearing the screams and everything 
called the police, but just never opened the door or acknowledged uh, Andrew. So that's another possibility, but we have no idea. We, we don't. I'm just guessing at this point. Jessica then asked, well, okay, I get that, but what is your connection to Bill Hampton? So Andrew is like, I subscribed to the Cabot Cove Gazette once I went into jail, then to prison. And I knew that at some point I would see a picture of the person that I saw on that night and I would recognize them and be able to put a name to a face. And so he opens up his scrapbook, which has newspaper clippings from the Cabot Cove Gazette, which is also the paper that he got the clippings from that he put on Bill's car and in front of Bill's house. And he shows them a picture, a high school picture. And it's probably the, the Dak Rambo's actual high school photo, (laughs) but it's Bill Hampton, right? As a teenager. And Andrew's like, this was, he was there that night. And Jessica was like, he was the driver. He was the one who ran you guys off the road. And Andrew says, no, he was the passenger. He was wearing a white dinner jacket like kids were wearing to prom in those days. And you'd be surprised to know that this accident happened on the same night as the Cabot Cove senior prom. Now, this gives both Amos and Jessica pause. And Jessica's like, well, it was dark out that night. Like, how did you see him? And I don't think he ever responds to that. He says, then Jessica says, I see what you were doing. You were putting pressure on Bill with hopes that he would lead you to the driver. And at this point, Amos is like, I advise you to leave town before I arrest you. And I'm like, Amos, no, no. I don't know who wrote this for you, but that's trash. Okay. Andrew is like, I haven't broken any laws. To which Amos says, but you're planning to. You you came here seeking revenge. And Andrew says, not revenge, justice. Now, people have different definitions of justice. But in this case, he's trying to find the people who actually murdered this businessman that a murder that he sat in jail, in prison, for 20 years for not having committed this murder. So the next, before we get to the next scene, the fact is if Amos arrested him for thinking about committing a crime, that he can't even prove that he was thinking of committing a crime because his quest for justice has not crossed a line into criminal conduct. Now, it can easily get to the point of harassment if he continued to follow Bill around town and make his presence known. But even that's sketchy because he could drive Pat up and down Bill's street or in front of his dealership every single day, hour on the hour, just loop around in his red and white car. Now, obviously, this was the car. The one that Andrew is driving is the one that the businessman was driving 
when the car that Bill Hampton was in forced it off the road, that is the car. So that's just also needling Bill into, you know, remembering this time. Like, I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that you know that we know. And I want to know who the driver was. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to stay here until you tell me. And the thing is, like, he actually has not committed any crimes. Yeah. He is very crafty, but think about it. He had 20 years to think about how he was going to find these people. And then having found one, how he was going to get to that person within the confines of the law in order to get the person who was the actual murderer. We also still have no idea how he saw Bill Hampton. Like that's never addressed. So I'm guessing that Bill was in the car still. Perhaps he was passed out. Maybe he was outside the car walking around yelling for the driver to hurry up and get back in. They had to get out of there. Or he was in the car with the door open and the inside light was on. So when Andrew came back in the shadows, he could see Bill lit up in the car. So we never find out. Again, I'm guessing. So Jessica goes to speak with Coach Caldwell because she knows that just like she is close with these people. He is close with them. And she tells him that she believes Andrew, that he did not murder this businessman and that Bill was there. And so therefore Bill knows who the driver was that murdered the businessman. Cause we're all okay with the fact that Bill was not the murderer. And I don't think Andrew believed that Bill was the murderer. He clearly didn't, or he wouldn't care who the driver was, to be honest. Like, yeah, you forced us off the road, but that's not what killed the businessman. So and this man has no name. We're, so we're just going to refer to him as the businessman. No disrespect, but they did not give him a name. And the coach is like, these are my boys. Bill was like a son to me. Just going to say yikes. Okay. <laughs> So Jessica is like, no, like I believe Mr. Durbin, the coach was like, he's lying. You know, there's no way that Bill could have been there that night. And Jessica is like, you need to tell me if you know anything, because he is following Bill to find out who the driver is. He thinks that Bill is going to lead him to the driver. And so Jessica asks, like, can you please speak with Bill? Like, Allison is extremely upset and he is acting in a very concerning manner. You know, we're talking about he's carrying a gun. He's not telling his wife what's going on. They're getting calls and packages in the middle of the night. Yeah, this is concerning. And the coach is like, I believe that Durbin did the murder but I will talk to Bill. So the next scene, we're at the car lot and we remember that Bill called somebody and said, meet me there a little bit before nine because Andrew was coming at nine. So whoever's supposed to come, he's like, oh, 
you're here early. Now we know immediately that it's not Andrew because the look on Bill's face is one of, he has kind of a smile on his face, not a smirk. He looks comfortable with the person. He's not on edge. He didn't go to grab for the gun. None of that. So clearly it is a safe, trusted person. There's no way that it could have been Andrew based on his body language and the look on his face. So we know that it's not that. But then we hear a gun cock. His face changes to that of surprise. And then long story short, he is shot. Now, the next day he's found and the police are there. Specifically, Amos is on scene. He calls Jessica and the coach. Now, I don't know if he just called Jessica and Jessica called the coach to bring her there because Bill was super close to him as well, or if Amos called both of them, but they're both there. Jessica's like, who found him? Amos is like, Hal Avery. I don't know who this is. That's not important. And Amos says, according to Doc Matthews, Bill shot himself in the head between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. last night. And Amos is like, he must not have been able to take the pressure that Andrew was putting on him. And Jessica goes up to the doctor and she's like, Doc Matthews, like, are you sure it's suicide? And the doc says, yes, it is one gunshot to the right temple. And Jessica's like, why would he have shot himself in the right temple? He's left-handed. A left-handed person wouldn't shoot themselves on with their right hand. And at this point, so there's some discussion amongst them. And Jessica concludes that it had to be someone who didn't know Bill and know that he was left-handed. So Amos is like a stranger. Where are we the next scene? At Lila's house speaking with Andrew. So it was Andrew, Jessica, and Amos. And Andrew's like, I didn't kill Bill. <laughs> kill Bill. Anyway, um, that was a good movie, set of movies, set of movies. And Amos is like, yeah, um, he gets a phone call while he's there. And it confirms that Andrew was at dinner at the Cove restaurant. From 8 p.m. until 11 p.m. And Andrew's like, yeah, when they closed a little after 11, that's how, that's when I was there. And Amos is like, that's a long time to have dinner. He's like, I'm a slow eater. Sir, he has an alibi. Like, calm down. He's not it. Anyway, so... Amos also was able to confirm that the keys to Andrew's car are still locked in Bill's office. So he did not have access to his car. He would have needed a taxi. And obviously there are no taxi records for him going from the Cove restaurant or anywhere to Bill Hampton's car lot. So it could not have been him. And Jessica says, well, now you've accomplished your goal so you can leave. And Andrew's like, no, only half of my goal has been accomplished. And Jessica's like, well, we only have your word that Bill Hampton was there that night. So 
Andrew gives Jessica his scrapbook and he says, you read through this and then you come back and tell me that I'm the murderer and Bill Hampton was not involved. And she leaves with that. So the next scene, we are in Perry's chambers, his judicial chambers with Allison and Tara. And Jessica comes in and Perry's like, Bill would never commit suicide. And Jessica says, no, I don't believe he did. I think it was someone else. And it comes out that she believes that whoever was with Bill the night of the murder that actually murdered the businessman is the person who murdered Bill. And so Perry is like, well, there's no way that Bill was involved that night. They all went to an all night diner after prom. Now, Allison says this and she's like, isn't that right, Perry? And Perry says, yes, yes, we all of us, including Bill and Allison, were at this all night diner after the prom until 7 a.m. So there's no way that he Andrew could have seen Bill because he was with us the entire time. And Jessica's like, if, are you sure? Because someone else could be in danger if you're wrong. And Perry's like, no, we were all there. I'm like, oh, so you're ethical about not violating conflict of interest laws, but not about lying about a possible murderer to cover up for a murderer who's actually dead. Okay, Bill was not the murderer, but I'm saying like Bill is dead. Like, what are we doing now? Like, who are we protecting at this point? Now they do not know who the driver of the car is. Now they legitimately do not know. So they're not hiding that, but they are lying about the fact that Bill was with them at the diner. So the next scene, the coach drives up to the pier and he finds Andrew there smoking a pipe. He then proceeds to punch him and yell at him about killing one of his boys and not as in friends, but as in like children boys, even though they're grown men, but whatever, you know, connections, relationships, you know, championship, the only one in your life, I guess it's a a deeper connection than anything else. And Andrew is not fighting back. He is taking these punches and I think it's for two reasons. One, he knows that even though all of these people saw the coach attack him, if he fights back, he is going to get arrested and he's probably going to have his parole violated for this, despite the fact that he did zero things wrong. Okay. The other reason is there is a chance, more likely of a chance that he would be able to either press charges and or sue the coach for injuries if he did not fight back. So clearly if he did fight back, he would have beat the brakes off of that coach. Okay, sir, you have 25 years on this man easily and you have some more weight, but he looks like he's much stronger. He looks like he, he's been in prison. So he probably has some light prison muscles going on in this situation. 
and he has all this anger built up in him, he would have beat the brakes off of this old man. And I would not have been mad at him because you don't come up just out the car, especially when we find out the whole story. You got the actual nerve to come and attack this man who is just trying to get justice. No, no, he, he should have just real, but I understand why he didn't. I completely understand why he didn't. He's like, violence isn't the answer. Remember he was a hippie before violence isn't the answer. And he knows that he has so much more to lose by fighting back than just getting punched a few times by this old man. So yeah, he should, but he should have beat the brakes off that man. Like I, moving on, moving on. So Jessica comes up on this. She's like, calm down. And she basically takes the coach to her house so that he can cool off. So now they're at Jessica's house. Jessica's like, listen, I believe that Bill was involved. And so, and so with somebody else. And she tells him Allison lied and Perry swore to it, you know, and she's asking the coach, do you remember anything about that night of the prom? And the coach says he left at 11, an hour before the end of the prom. And Jessica says, why did you leave early? And he said the same reason you were not there, the flu. And so I didn't want to... And also, like, who wants their coach around, you know, as it's getting later into the prom, you know, I guess he meant trying to get the girls to either the car or the hotel. So Jessica's trying to think this through. And she's like, but what about Dan? Didn't they used to call him the animal? And the coach says, yeah, but he he did have a lot of tenacity. But all of the guys, they really kept it on the gridiron. They, they weren't like that in regular everyday life, but also Dan kind of lost all of that fight once he started drinking. So he said to a bottle of gin. So once he started drinking and the coach was like, the weird thing is in high school, Dan would not touch any alcohol, not a beer, nothing. And Jessica is like, I wonder what triggered him you know, not only indulging in alcohol, but becoming an alcoholic. Now we don't ever find out like poor Dan is just out here living his unfortunately alcoholic life. Don't know. Nobody's trying to, well, people are trying to help him. He's not ready for help yet. He, he has not gotten there yet, but we don't find out why he started drinking. They just say this in passing. It's kind of like a red herring. Like maybe he started drinking because he was the driver and murdered this guy. That would make sense. That's a good red herring, but they kind of just leave it out there. We never actually find out why Dan started drinking, but yeah. So, so there's that unresolved issue. So Jessica was like, yeah, but it couldn't have been Dan because Dan never had two dimes to rub together. And I'm sure that the accomplice shared in the spoils of the $100,000 bearer bonds. Now, apparently these bearer bonds are as good as cash. I don't know how that works. I guess you could just take them into the bank. We'll discuss that a little bit later, actually. And 
then Jessica brings up Arnie. And she said Arnie was always the poor kid in school. But he seems to have made a fortune in the stock market. I wonder how he did that. Meaning, how did he get the startup money? Not how, how did he have this poor kid have the skills to do well in the stock market? Simply, how did he have money to get into the stock market uh, in the first place? So the next scene, we have Jessica at Arnie's house. And she brings up the fact that four years after the murder happened, Bill came up with $50,000 to start his car company. That was probably five, half of the bear bonds that were missing. And Arnie is like, oh, I always knew that guy was a crook. And Jessica says, well, five years after high school, you returned and it looks like you turned a $50,000 investment into a multi-million dollar stock portfolio. How did you get that $50,000? Now, Arnie refuses to tell her and basically is like, I don't know what you want. I'm not going to tell you. Get out my house. So Jessica leaves and she's like, oh, I found this registered letter outside your house. It's from the insurance company. I'll just leave it here on the hallway table. She walks out, closes the door. At this point, because he's stupid, Arnie gets up. He is not, a miracle. A miracle happened. A miracle. He can walk. He can walk. Oh my goodness. Why is this not on television? So, oh wait, it is. Anyway, so he gets up. He walks over to the table. Jessica walks back in the door. He looks shocked. She's like, yeah, I saw scuff marks from a man's shoe on the freshly oiled floors. I think she said, yeah. And he's like, okay. She's like, we need to speak with Sheriff Tupper. So the next scene, they are at the sheriff's office. Now, the thing that she put on the table was actually her phone bill. I was like, Jessica, you always got some trick up your sleeve. So we find out from Arnie that the $50,000 was actually an inheritance he got a few years after high school. And Jessica's like, why did you lie? And he's like, oh, you know, I didn't want to just be the, you know, the poor kid that kind of, I wanted to show that I had some financial prowess. I'm like, that makes zero sense. That makes zero sense. You still made multi-millions of dollars from a $50,000 investment. Now, it would be different if you got that $50,000 inheritance and you went back to zero. I want to tell nobody about that $50,000 or that I even looked at the stock market. But you did. Like, that shows your financial prowess, the fact that you were able to, or luck, whichever you want to call it, that you were able to be successful, extremely successful with that money. So yeah, that's stupid for refuse. Why would you refuse to tell her where you got the money from when she is basically accusing you of being a murderer and taking and getting that $50,000 as blood money? Why wouldn't you be like, nah, I got an inheritance. Don't tell nobody though. You know, because for some stupid reason, 
it, it does not make sense. Like the paper said you started with a $50,000 deposit and turned it into multi-million dollars. People are going to be like, where you got that $50,000? They're going to think you stole it. If you don't want to tell people, they're going to think you stole it. That's why you're stupid. Like it would have been better. Like I had a rich uncle that I did not know about. And he left me $50,000 when he died. That's where I got it from. But I did an amazing job in making a great life out of it. Anyway, so Jessica's like, ah, I'm guessing that the money has run out. And that's why you were suing Bill. Hoping that you would get enough money to maintain the lifestyle that you had created by doing so well in the stock market and getting those multi-millions of dollars. And Arnie says, yeah, like he phoned in the accident and he got some shyster lawyers and some crooked doctors to put some paperwork together about some made up injuries so that he could file the claim. And so Sheriff was like, yeah, so what happened the night of the prom? Can you please like, let's get to this. Jessica asked specifically about Bill and Arnie was like, what, what about him? He was drunk. Allison left him flat on the dance floor. He then ran out after her cause she left. They got into an argument and Jessica was like, around what time was that? He's like, it was like 11 o'clock. So then we get a call. Amos gets a call and we find out that Dan has been in a drunk tank in another town for the past two nights, which is concerning. Like, why is he there two nights? Usually in the morning, you're sober enough to, to go. Poor Dan. Like he really was just like real auxiliary and he has some real deep rooted problems. And they're just like, ah, he's a plot device. There you go. <laughs> Poor Dan. Jeez. So the next scene, Jessica goes back to Perry's chambers and like Allison and Tara are there. I'm like, do you not have court? Do you not have a day job? Shouldn't you be presiding over cases or something, doing legal research, talking to your paralegal, something? You just hanging out with your wife and your friend? <laughs> Clearly they don't have a lot of crime or civil stuff in Cabot Cove. Because if he was listening to, if he was presiding over Arnie's case for just a second before he's like, no, I know both parties have to recuse myself. That means he was at least handling civil cases. Y'all ain't got all that there. Y'all got all this time for your judges to just sit around and hang out. His wife doesn't have a job. Bill's wife doesn't have a job. Maybe it's Saturday, but then why are you in your chambers? Like, why wouldn't you be at your house? I, I am confused by all of this setting. So Jessica's like, y'all are lying to me. Why are you as dear close friends? And I'm like, Jessica, these were your students. They're not your friends. Okay. They're not your dear close friends. They're not. So let, let's, let's dial that back a bit. But she's like, why are you lying to me? And they're like, we're not lying. Allison's like, that's it. That's it. No more lying. I'm sick of this. Let's just get it all out. She says that Bill was drunk. 
he she did walk out of the prom he followed her they argued because he was trying to get her to leave the prom early so that they could go to a motel hotel holiday inn and get things going of a sexual nature and she's like um if that's what you think I am if that's all you are looking to get from me you can kick rocks okay I'm like go ahead girl have your standards. Now she did end up marrying him. So I guess, you know, he figured out, you know, this ain't the way to go. This ain't going to happen tonight. Besides the fact that he was drunk, like don't nobody want that. Don't, Don't nobody want that, Bill. Get it together. So Jessica was like, well, where did he drive off or who did he drive off with? And Allison was like, he didn't drive off, drive off with anybody. He walked back into the prom saying that he had a trophy to collect. And Jessica has an epiphany. So the next scene, we're at the football stadium. And the coach is sitting in the stands looking out into the football field. Jessica walks up. They have a conversation. He's like, oh, I'm remembering the championship and the roar of the crowd that night. And Jessica kind of gets to the point. She was like, yeah, so the $50,000 that you used to start your football camp that was a failure was your half of the bear bonds from the murder. And so the coach was like, how did you know? And Jessica says, and she pulls out the photo, right, of the football team or the those involved so Arnie Dan Bill Perry and the coach all with trophies right and the clock behind them which is as big as day says 11 45 p.m so Jessica is like there's no way that you could have left early at 11 p.m like you told me before and Bill was always your favorite So the coach basically says that Bill was drunk. So he put him in his car, meaning the coach put Bill in the coach's car to drive him home. And Bill kept grabbing the wheel to get the coach to turn around to go back to the diner that his friends were at. As they were coming around a bend, Another car was coming around. Bill grabbed the wheel and it caused their car to run the other car off the road. Now, Bill wanted to get out of there because I guess he sobered up just enough to realize they needed to GTFO. And they did drive a little ways down, but then the coach turned around to see if that guy was okay, not knowing there were two people in the car, but to see if the driver was okay. When he got there, he saw that the guy was bleeding. There was nobody in the passenger side, but the door was open. And he, and the back door was open too. Like, I don't, no, no, no. I take that back because it was a a two door. It was a two door. So the side, the passenger door was open. So the coach could see into the back seat. And in the back seat, just strewn all over because of the impact, were bear bonds. And he was like, they were good as cash, right? So the driver is unconscious. He then starts to come to and he sees 
the coach holding the bonds, right? So the coach is like, I had no other choice. I picked up a rock and I hit him over and over and over again, right? And Jessica was like, well, what about Bill? And the coach said, Bill idolized him. He would do anything that he asked, meaning the, anything that the coach asked Bill would do. And Jessica was like, oh, so when he sobered up, you swore him to secrecy. And the coach says, yes, in exchange for half of the bonds, right? So Jessica says, but your actions caused Andrew to be in prison for 20 years for a crime you committed. And the coach was like, but you know, I lived with that secret for 20 years. That's, that's not sufficient. That is not sufficient. You continued to live your life. And not only that, the fact is that for whatever reason, your football camp failed. But if it had been successful, you would have had this successful camp, right? With your name and a legacy and a legend and all of this, right? Off of a murder that you committed and allowed somebody else a, a college student, right, with his entire life ahead of him to go to prison for 20 years and you probably in your 40s commit, consciously made a decision to murder this man and you're, you being free because Bill wouldn't have got in trouble because Bill was drunk. He had zero parts in this. So he he would have had... You know, this would not have affected his life in the sense that he wouldn't have gone to jail or to prison. Now, he still has to hold on to the fact that his actions set off the chain that resulted in the crash because he was the one pulling the steering wheel and everything. And honestly, let's just take this back for a second. As soon as Bill did that the first time, the coach should have stopped the car and put Bill in the back seat or in the trunk. To be absolutely honest, he should have put that fool in the trunk. You're grabbing the wheel. He could have killed both of y'all. Like, what are you even doing? Y'all on a mountain road. I don't know why there's mountains in, in Cabot Cove, but you're on a mountain road. The same one from hit run homicide that, you know, you could have gone off a cliff on one side. You could have crashed into the mountains on the other side. Like, what do you even do? Were you drunk? Because this doesn't make any sense. As soon as he grabbed the wheel the first time, you should have either kicked him out of the car or threw him in the trunk. It's only going to be a few minutes. He ain't going to die in that trunk. It's going to be fine, you know. And it's an old car. You could probably put the back seat down or, you know, lean it forward a little bit so he could get oxygen and doesn't freak out from being in a closed space. Whatever. I've never done any of these things, but I'm just saying these are options. These are options that would have made more sense and been safer than you allowing this drunk man, because they're over 18, they're 18 at this point, this drunk man who is your student to almost kill both of you, but then almost kill 
two other people who were on the road. Now, you didn't know there were two people in that car, but somebody else who was on the road. And you go back to check and you're telling me in your 40s, okay, in your 40s, having been a football coach at that point for 10 years, okay, so having a career job for 10 years and dealing with high school students for 10 years and living your 40 years of life, 30 years of life, whatever, right? That you could not come up with an excuse as to why you were holding four or five of the bonds when the guy came to, he's woozy. You could have said anything. You could have dropped them and been like, oh my God, are you okay? Okay, do you see how many fingers am I holding up? Okay, we're gonna get an ambulance here. Okay, um, you know, just just lay back. Um, it's gonna be okay. But you get freaked out at your big age and drop them. I was like, he, you could have actually just probably picked them up and ran off with them. He couldn't have made you out in a lineup. He couldn't see. He got blood in his eyes. He, he hit his head. You know, you'd be like, I don't know. I went home at 11. I don't know what he's talking about. He could, there's no way he could have saw me because I was not there. You know, he hit his head. Like, who knows what he actually factually saw. That's what I'm saying. Like, you could not come up. That quickly, you would a lie. How many football players did you have to lie to to get the best out of them? Because they sucked, but you know they they still on the team. You know you, you got to get them to give you something. How many? How many? Okay, because I don't understand how you couldn't have just drop them. And pretended he wasn't going to push the point. He he had a head injury. He would have just been like, what happened? Nothing, nothing. I was trying to see if these were tissues or towels, but they're clearly not. Okay, let me push the seat back. Okay, lay down. Okay. Um, All right, I'm going to run and get uh, somebody to call the police. Okay, because we I think there's a farmhouse somewhere up there. Okay. Okay, but you you good, you you good. Okay, don't go to sleep. You know, don't go to sleep. You know, something. But your option is to find a rock and then go back to the car and bash his head in. Like that is your... And then steal the bonds, go on about life. See in the newspaper that someone was arrested for this and not say anything. Except, all right, don't tell him, Bill, don't say anything. You're going to get this $50,000, but you got to sit on it for a few years and then we can spend it. You are the worst type of person, okay? At least in the days dwindle down, at least the son was not the actual murderer who let... Sam spent 30 years in prison. Now he had his reasons and, you know, we discussed all of that in that episode, but you let this innocent teenager, like barely out of his teens. So maybe like early, maybe he could have been 19. He said he was in college. He didn't say what year, 
Meaning whether he was a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior. We know it was 1966, right? But we don't know how old he was or which year in college he was. But you saw him in the paper and I'm sure it said how old he was. And I'm sure it had some history about him. Maybe his family came to the trial and all of this. And you allowed this man this child, this young man, this boy, for, for someone in their 40s, this boy to go to prison for 20 years. And you're talking about, I had to live with that for 20 years. Screw you. Like, don't nobody care. Oh, cry me a river. Oh, you had that. Oh, you were concerned. There was a, what stress did you actually have? Please explain to me because somebody had been convicted of it. You didn't have to look around and say, oh, if they, did they find, did they find, did they find? Somebody was arrested, tried, and convicted of this. What stress you got? Answer me that. What stress do you have when they have convicted somebody? The worst type of person. Like, actually the worst type of person. Just disgusting, actually. So, yeah. So let's land this plane. Okay. <laughs> wow. So the final scene, Jessica and Amos are at Jessica's house. And Amos is like, well, why didn't Bill and the coach, well, Kevin is his first name, just kill Andrew? And Jessica says, well, that would have been proving that he was right. Or it would seem like it was proving that he was right. And the case would be reinvestigated because it's like, oh, he came saying that Bill was there, right? And there was another person there. Now he's dead. Maybe he was murdered because he was on to something, you know? Because if it was alive, people, there's no reason to murder somebody over a lie, right? It's only makes sense to murder them over the truth that you don't want to get out. Amos then asked, well, why did the coach shoot Bill in the right temple knowing that he was left-handed? And Jessica says, well, he wanted us to think that a stranger killed Bill to make it look like a suicide, Right. And therefore, that stranger, two plus two equals Andrew Durbin. So Amos is like, ah, no, I get it. I get it. So then the doorbell rings and it's Andrew. And he says, well, I'm leaving town now. You know, everything is complete. And so, yeah, I just want to thank you. And Jessica's like, well, I don't really want to be thanked or however she put it. And... She says that justice could have been served in a better way to which Andrew says, oh, well, how about you give it some thought and you let me know what that better way would have been. Okay, bye. And as much as I love Jessica, she was, no, no. This man spent 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And the people who did it, 
Now, unfortunately, Bill was a casualty. Now, he, he was the cause of the original accident that opened this door that started this chain of events. He was intoxicated. So there's, you know, a lack of intent in, in that, right? So he wouldn't have gotten in trouble. Like he was probably old enough to get drunk because back in the 60s, I'm sure that the drinking age was 18, if not younger in the States. But he did not do anything that would have gotten him arrested. The coach, who was the sober one, did not do anything to prevent this accident from happening. One. Two, the coach is the one who murdered the businessman. Three, the coach is the one who knew he murdered the businessman and allowed an innocent man to go to prison. Four, the coach went on and lived his life and then floundered that $50,000. Then you have Bill on the other side who unfortunately gets murdered so that he keeps his mouth. He was definitely a casualty because the coach one was probably concerned that he would uh, eventually speak, that he would get freaked out enough to actually tell on the coach and tell what really happened. Um, But also in order to frame Andrew on another murder that he did not commit Bill had to die so this coach murdered someone he felt was like a son to him to save his own neck think about that that's deep that is beyond And he thinks that just his, like, he didn't even say when she said that you allowed an innocent man to spend 20 years in prison. And he's like, I had to hold that, that secret for 20 years. He did not even say, I had to kill somebody who was like a son to me. That would have been that he did it for real trash reasons. He did it to save himself, which is like, you should have just fell on the sword 20 years ago and been done with it. What have you done with your life for the past 20 years? Uh, nothing. Anyway, but he did it. He murdered two people to save one for money and one to save himself. So that he could put suspicion on Andrew and kill the witness. The only witness that could put him for absolutely sure in that car and then murdering the guy and get stealing the bonds. So he is not the innocent in here. I can understand Bill's punishment was much more than necessary way more losing your life when you made a drunken mistake that did not result in a murder, but some independent factors resulted in a murder that you were not involved in. You, your crime was to stay quiet, which is its own issues. Don't get me wrong, but losing your life 
at the hands of someone you idolize and thought of as a father figure, that's way more than was necessary for Bill. Like he wasn't, he wasn't abusing his wife. He wasn't out here cheating. He wasn't out here lying. Yes, he was a used car salesman. So whatever comes with that, whatever biases you have about that. But still, like, he didn't even sell a lemon that caused his best, one of his good friends to be paralyzed for life. Because that was a whole lie. So he was not a bad person. He made some terrible decisions and then he followed some bad direction but not enough to be killed over. And the businessman, we don't even know about him. And he gets murdered just because he had some bear bonds in a suitcase in his backseat when he ends up being forced off the road and crashing. And Andrew was just trying to get a ride to another rally or maybe back to college at this point. Well, no, it probably was another rally because I'm going to guess that the prom was in June, like at the end of the school year. So usually college or university, whichever you call it, tends to end in May. So he was likely going to another anti-Vietnam rally, which is nothing wrong because they, well, the peaceful ones, you know, always the peaceful rallies. So those we get with. But, wow. So the coach is the worst person. I I won't say the worst because I'm sure there were others that were just beyond terrible. But so far this season, he is the worst person. One of the worst people in ever in this series. One of the worst in ever. I know that's not grammatically correct, but that's, I said what I said and I meant it. The worst in ever, okay? (laughs) In this series that I can think of now, there may be others, there will be more, I'm sure, but wow. There's just a much deeper level of injustice to this one than there was in the days dwindled down. Yeah, even though that was 30 years and we talked about that in that episode, like I said, and this was 20, but wow, there, there were levels to this, but that's that on that. Another great episode that we could take a good deep dive into. Um, I don't know if the writers expected all of this, But that's where we got that we we got here. We stayed here. And next week we will be talking about witness for the defense. Now, that episode, the defense attorney annoys me a lot. Now, this is in Quebec. I am told that's how you pronounce it in Canada. So their judicial system is different than that in the States. So I won't, I'll probably won't be making commentary on the trial practices, like the actual trial and the structure, because that is outside of my knowledge base. 
because I practice in the States, but we will definitely talk about witness preparation and things like that because that defense attorney can kick rocks in his bare feet. That's what he could do. How dare you? Um, But yeah, it's an interesting story. There is infidelity involved. There is murder and a bit of a twist situation, if I remember correctly. But we'll get to it when we get to it. I'm looking forward to it. Until next week, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, Meta, at the Fletcher Files Pod on Facebook, Meta, right? (laughs) And of course, on Patreon, link in the description box, get into it. But until next week, promise me you will have an amazing week and I will do the same. Until then, next Sunday, 5 p.m., witness for the defense. We'll get through it together. I promise you that much. (laughs) Maybe we won't, but we will. Until then, bye.